My name is Warren, and I'm fortunate enough to have been asked to curate this One Life exhibition of Elvis, and do bear with me, I've got a little bit of an allergy thing going on today, so I'll try to be as, as clear as I can. One of the first things that, that you see when you walk into the room is the variety of, of ways people have interpreted Elvis and, uh, you know, certainly standing uh, uh, foremost in the room, I think, is, is the Arneson piece. It just kind of stands, stands out. You can't miss it, the height and the monumentality of it all. And then front and center, we have Ralph Wolf Cowan's piece. One of, the, one of the more interesting pieces, and, and I'm proud to say this is in the National Portrait Gallery collection, is this Red Groom's piece immediately... I think of the Bakhtinian notion of carnivalesque when I think of red grooms. Carnivalesque is kind of a, kind of a linguistic notion that that I'm crossing over a couple of disciplines with, but it means exactly what it sounds like. You've taken the dominant style of, in this case, portraiture, and you've expanded on that that style in a humorous or a satirical way, carnivalesque. Again, the, um, the thing that, that really strikes me about this, this image is how broad it is. You've got the gold lame suit at work in here. Actually, in this slide, it, it almost looks like University of Tennessee volunteer orange, but coming from Memphis like I do, here's my, here's my ring. I'd probably get hurt pretty badly if my, uh, you know, if my, if my relatives heard me say that, because Tennessee and Memphis are, are pretty, pretty intense rivals. Elvis was nothing if not flashy, and this picture exudes that, and Red Grooms draws upon that. I want to talk, before we get too much into Elvis, a little bit about Red Grooms, Grooms is a fellow Tennessean. He was born in Nashville in 1937, and he trained in several different places, among them the Art Institute of Chicago, and also at the Peabody College, and later on at the New School in New York. His studios, actually, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's on Walker Street in, in New York in the 10013 uh, zip code. He's hard at work all the time, and one of the things that you see about Red is his willingness to participate in his art in all sorts of ways. He is the one that we talk about when we say multimedia or various media. He works in collage, he works in sculpture, and he's also done, uh, done things that, that resemble vaudeville and participation art, or what's, what's the better term for participation art? Performance art, that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, he's, he's incorporated his artwork into many experiments in, inside theater. And as you can tell with this, he's also a big fan and, and has always been a big fan of the comic book. And so you see, you see that coming to us in, in this portrait as well. And again, Red Grooms is still alive. They have done several, uh, um, they, several places have, have executed retrospectives on his work beginning in the mid-1980s. And I guess, let's see, if he was born in 1937, he would be a couple of years 
younger than Elvis, so this year he would be he would be 73. Yeah, yeah. Fun is one of the things, one of the words I like to use to describe the contents of this gallery, and I think you, I think this is uh, this piece exudes a lot of fun. You've got Elvis in the bright costume. By the way, I'm going to Memphis tomorrow. I'm going to stop by and see Mr. Lansky. I always buy my socks at Mr. Lansky's store in the Peabody. And Mr. Lansky is the one who outfit Elvis. I can't afford to buy anything except socks from Mr. Lansky. But, but it's always cool. You walk in there, and he's always signing books. And I think that book over there, Elvis Fashion, has been signed by Mr. Lansky. And that's the book that he wrote or co-wrote on Elvis and the way Elvis dressed. Elvis liked to dress like a lot of the guys that he saw playing down on Beale Street way back in the day. And he was a big admirer of the, of the blues musicians who saddled up and played down on Beale Street. He also was, Elvis was a big fan of gospel. Here, though, you've got what almost looks like a Porter Wagner motif going on with his clothing. And you've got the gold lame suit. The guitar is also largely decorated. And the TCB logo that you see in the bottom left hand of the guitar right here was Elvis's, that was his personal creed, taking care of business in a flash, TCB with the lightning bolt coming out of it. And you also see that echoed over there in the Ralph Wolf Callan piece. If you look very closely at Elvis's ring on his left hand in there, he's got the TCB logo bejeweled in that image. Also, it was, uh, it was something that he gave out as um, a, bit of a bit of a signifier that you're one of my pals. If you got a TCB ring or a necklace, that meant that you were, you were pretty tight with Elvis in all likelihood. You were uh, one of his Memphis Mafia buddies, and you, uh, you might have even been shouldering a Colt 45 automatic and well-practiced in karate so that you could form part of the phalanx that escorted Elvis through the MGM Grand as he strolled toward the stage in Las Vegas. The Memphis Mafia has been represented here, by the way, recently. Jerry Schilling, who was one of Elvis's pals from the early days, came in and did an interview with BBC on Elvis's birthday, January the 8th. And I'm not sure how old Jerry is, but he's got to be close to 70. And man, he is as cool as the day is long. He's just, he's, he's you, can't, you can't tell he's a Memphis boy. He's just, he's, he's just a really, he's a slick guy and super nice as well. Something that we see also in this image, look at Elvis's nice pretty blue eyes that Red Grooms has captured. You see that in different shades throughout the room. One of the things that, that attracts people to Elvis beginning in the early parts of his career is the fact that, yeah, he was a great singer, but you can't ignore it. What a great-looking guy. And this, is, uh, this has fallen down to us from Al Wertheimer, the fellow who took the large body of photos in 1956, this comment. 
Elvis made the girls cry. That's how we knew he was different. And I, I use, that, use that quote over and over again. The two, the two things I think that I hear myself repeating more often throughout discussions of Elvis the past couple of months, one, John Lennon's comment before there was Elvis, there was nothing. The fact that John Lennon would make that statement has so much resonance attached to it. What is John Lennon saying there? Is John Lennon saying, uh, that, that Elvis by himself created the cultural canon with respect to music. What John Lennon is saying that. Before there was Elvis, there was nothing. You hear that, and you go, wow, that's pretty cool. Oh, and John Lennon said it. Um, and then that comment by Al Wertheimer that, that he made the girls cry. You know, I, you know, I can make the girls cry, but usually it entails stepping on their feet. You, know, you don't want to do that. That's not the cool way to do it, man. You do it with your music. I, I think that's, that's just absolutely a magical comment. In the background, we have Graceland. And we see Graceland also echoed inside this room in those two images that were shot inside the Graceland portfolio by another Tennessee artist, William Eggleston. Here we have the outside of Graceland to Elvis's back, along with another one of the great Elvis motifs, the pink Cadillac. Graceland is a, is a large colonial-style mansion, and if you is there anybody in this room who's been to Graceland? Please raise your hand if you've been to Graceland. Been there? Yeah. Look at this. Oh my goodness! Six hundred thousand people a year. There's a few of you in here, actually, and if. And if, and if you haven't been, you're, you're outgunned in this crowd, aren't you? Yeah. If you haven't been, you're probably on your way. You might be waiting in line right now. Um, Graceland is, um, is real interesting, and those of you who have been there, I'm sure will back me up on this. From the street, it splays out. It's up on a slow, slow hill, and there's these beautiful trees that, that mark the driveway as it goes up. What you, what you feel on the inside, however, is completely different than what you see on the outside. Because when you walk in, the ceilings are not much taller than, than this right here. It's uh, not the mansion that the Beverly Hillbillies lived in when they were in Beverly Hills, right? It's a small, southern-style colonial mansion, but it feels more like a home. I worked there for six months, and to be perfectly honest with you, I was an awful tour guide. I didn't know what I was, I was doing, and I kind of did it as, as something of, um, it was a little bit of a joke with me and all that, but I memorized the script pretty quickly, and the more I got in there, the more I thought, well, this is kind of far out, and you're wandering around through Elvis's house, and it's the same feeling. I've worked in museums all my life. I started out working at the Municipal Museum in Memphis, and I'm lucky enough to be here now, and on the way... To, to this point in my life, something I've, I've always noticed is when you're in certain buildings, you feel the ghosts. And in this one, you know, you feel Walt Whitman and you feel all those soldiers and you feel that experience of this building. And I do. I'm not you know, a real believer in ghosts or anything. But you know what I mean. You feel the history when you're in. And when you go to, when you go to other places, like if you've been to Malmaison, Josephine's home, uh, these places you feel the spirit, and Graceland's that way. You feel the lives of those who have come through the halls of that building. Graceland was especially that way when I was working there in the late 1980s, because Elvis's aunt Delta, Elvis had had been deceased for 12 years when I, I went there the very first time for me, 
and I was in my, my early 20s, I guess, and his aunt was still living in there, and she would go in and make her breakfast in the morning. So you'd smell bacon and eggs and toast and coffee. And I was a college kid, and I was partying all night long, and man, it would just make you crazy because there would be someone in there who obviously knew how to cook the way I was brought up eating. And it added to the entire feeling that, yes, I'm walking into a house right here. It still feels that way. Aunt Delta passed away in the early 1990s, but and, and she was a terribly interesting woman. Uh, she let you know exactly how she felt about you if you ever stopped to say hello to her or anything. Um, she had half a million people a year traipsing through the house she was living in, so I suspect that probably put her on her ornery edge at times. She had a dog named Edmund that Elvis gave her, and then Edmund died, and she named the second dog Edmund that looked just like that dog. And then she had another, and I think it was like a little palm. And she named the third one. She kept naming all these dogs Edmund uh, after the first Edmund that Elvis bought her. But she lived actually in these quarters that were off behind the, li- uh, behind the tourist space. And the way Graceland was set up back then, you would walk in, and you would take a look at the front rooms, then you would go down a set of stairs that were slightly to the left, and there were these mirrors that had this parallax effect attached to them, this infinite regression thing going on on either side. And then you would go down into the basement. And basements may be usual for Washington, D.C., but for Memphis, Tennessee, they're not all that usual. The basement's where Elvis had his uh, television room and his um, billiard room. And then you would come back up the back way, and you would practically be in the kitchen where Aunt Delta was in, in there sipping her coffee, and then you would be looking into the jungle room, which is actually in the back of the house. And for those of you who have been there, you know they call it the jungle room because there's a carpet on the floors and the ceilings, and it looks like you're, you're in a densely foliated, very verdant room. It's got a jungle motif, and there's one chair with like a monkey face on it or something. It's a pretty far out experience. When you leave the house... You actually see how big the land is. Graceland sits on 18 acres in Whitehaven, which was, when Elvis bought it, way outside the city. Now it's incorporated into the city of Memphis. And Elvis built a racquetball court, a trophy room. He did all kinds of stuff to the place. He moved in in 1957. He lived there for 20 years. If I'm not mistaken, he bought it for $100,000. And now... Like I said, 600,000 people go through there every year. It used to be, I think, they would charge under $10 a, a head. There's no telling how much they're getting for it now. It's probably $25, $30 just to see the mansion. But there's a racquetball court attached to it. And one of the most amazing things is about the house is uh, several things that Elvis never saw. The trophy room, which is... Uh, behind the mansion roughly, and it's just full of awards and gold records. And then there's the racquetball court, which is kind of an addition to the trophy room now, and the ceilings in it are about 25 feet tall, and they're loaded with records that have gone gold in multiple formats, like CD and MP3 and all these other formats, since Elvis died over and over and over again. Records keep selling in the million formats as technology changes. Anyway, that's a little walk through Graceland. The pink Cadillac I wanted to talk about just for a moment. 
Curiously, Elvis and Muhammad Ali both, with their first big money, each of them sank a splash into a pink Cadillac, and that's been associated with Elvis all this time. You can see it also reflected in this image by Donald Paterson at the end of this wall, the pink Cadillac. Someone on one of these first tours when we opened this room up said, oh, it's like a Mary Kay car. Man, you would never say that to Elvis. He would slap you down, man. You wouldn't say that's a Mary Kay car. Anyway, what you also see in here is something, and I don't think we've talked about this very much, but it, it, it's pretty interesting. The Gates of Graceland, if you're, if, for those of you who have been there, they have this nice musical note motif at work, and it actually looks like, um, it looks like a series of, series of bars with notes hanging on them. It's, it's a pretty interesting place. And if you ever go there, chances are you're, you're probably going to have to stand in line because a lot of people are trying to go through there with you. One of the last things I wanted to, to, to wrap up the talk by saying was, it is, it's, a, it's a really interesting place, and you feel, the, you feel the lives that have been through there when you, when you go to visit Graceland. But sadly, it's also Elvis' final resting place. And so you see... His grave, his mother's grave, his father's grave, his grandmother's grave, and there's a stone memorial to his little brother who was stillborn when Elvis was born in 1935. Every morning, fan clubs from all over the world still have flowers sent to Elvis's grave. Fresh flowers arrive at that gravesite every morning between 7 and 8 a.m. And people are allowed to walk up there and they pay their respects. And two times a year, Graceland allows people to go in there uh, on, I'm sorry, mainly on the candlelight vigil night, which is August 15th every year. They just have a parade of people that line up the driveway and they take candles and they go by the graves. It's, very, it's a very dramatic, very dramatic ceremony, but it's also fun because they've got music piped up all over Elvis Presley Boulevard. And it's, you know, they try to make it as uplifting as they can while they're, while they're reaching into your wallet to take those tourism dollars from you, which I'm sure is a common experience everywhere where there's uh, doors open in, in cultural tourism. Does anybody have any questions about this or any of the other works in the room? Yes, sir. Excellent question, Ian. The uh, the guys who were in the Memphis Mafia came to know Elvis a lot. Of, you know, their their nucleus. These are the guys that they hung around Elvis, and eventually he put them on payroll. He put them on um, the the Elvis Presley payroll. They would escort him at uh, at concerts and public appearances, and then they would also do a lot of this uh, this personal. Hanging around, you know, they were his on. They were his entourage, right? One of the interesting things about those guys, he he met up with many of them, and they they uh, you know in high school. But a lot of them, they came from they came from side interests, like his interest in karate. And he had uh, several guys in that group who were who were black belts in karate, and he had a terrible paranoia about being being charged on stage, and he was also, uh, in his later years, a big conspiracy believer, and Elvis believed that people were out to get him, and in a couple of instances, people did charge onto the stage, and there's one story about him 
kicking a guy off the stage who actually managed to get past the first level of security, and he, and he karate chopped him right off the stage, which that must have been, that must have been a really keen moment to witness. I, 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 you know, I'd, I'd lay out a month's pay to see something like that. You know, there goes Elvis knocking the guys down. Um, these guys were around him to protect him, but they were also around him to keep him entertained because he had, he had weird hours and he liked to have his buddies around. One sad part about it is he questioned their loyalty and a lot of times he would put them to tests. And so in his mind, he didn't know whether he, he really had, had his associations uh, out of friendship or if people just liked him because he was Elvis and because he did have a payroll that he supported these guys with. Although it must have been fun to be working for Elvis, his father, Vernon, was the, Elvis's business manager, not the promotional manager. That was Colonel Tom Parker. Vernon was a product of the Depression and Mississippi in the Depression. And Vernon Presley could squeeze a nickel all day long. So it cannot have been a really high-paying gig to have been working for Elvis. And there are reports about guys like that. And a lot of guys, you know, they came in and out, and they left him for other jobs and worked on films with him as well. Was that a name that they accepted and used, or was that... The Memphis Mafia? I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's a really great question. I don't know who... But they are, you know, that is the, the Elvis answer to the Rat Pack, right? Elvis didn't really fit in with those guys out there in Vegas, Dean Martin and Sinatra and, and all those guys. And so he assembled his own crew, and these guys were with him everywhere he went. A couple of them stunt doubled for him in the movies. They probably didn't mind the title so much because, you know, they were the cool kids in the, in the crowd, I guess. They were also the guys who... Uh, in a lot of cases, they helped get girls, or they brought girls to him, and and more than uh, more than a few of them brought him pharmaceuticals as well. So, yeah, they were kind of an all-purpose sort of sort of club. Yeah. How did Graceland get its name? Say that again. How did, how did Graceland get its name? How did name? Graceland get its name? Graceland was built by the the Moore family, M O O R E, and this family, if I'm not mistaken ran a large printing business in Memphis, and, and I think they were part of the S.C. Toof family, and they built this home in the late 1930s, 1938, I believe, and named it after Mrs. Moore's mother, Grace Moore. So it wasn't named after Elvis's mom, or otherwise it would be called Gladysland. So, yeah, good questions, very good. Yes, ma'am. I don't know. I think he thought maybe his mom would like it because it was originally for his mom, but she couldn't drive. So he ended up driving it. And, and there were a lot of people who made a lot of comments about the fact that it was a... And, you know, they don't really sell a lot of these that aren't custom-made. So, mm. good questions. Thank you all for coming this evening, folks. Thank you, Warren Perry. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it, Ian. Thanks for asking me out.